0: Hello everyone and welcome to Berlin Companion, a weekly podcast about everything you never even knew you wanted to know about Berlin. My name is Beata, and some of you might know me as the woman behind the Berlin history blog called Kreuzberg Berlin Companion. Or you can know me from Twitter. Last week we opened the series with a story of a lost time, Berlin time to be exact, and this week, as promised, we will talk about clocks. In today's second episode, we will stay in the realm of time and chronometers, if only because Berlin's often held for a place that cares little for the former, but still has many interesting examples of the latter. I'm sure you know those typical German clocks with four faces looking in four different directions. They are known as Normaluhren, standard clocks, and they first appeared here in 1893. If you listened to last week's episode, you will know why exactly then. It's because in April 1893 Germany introduced Central European time as its official time for the whole of the empire. That's why they needed standardized clocks that would be showing the same time regardless of whether you were in Bochum, in Hamburg or in Berlin. Today, we are first traveling back in time to the 18th century when Berlin got its first mechanical public clock, one which became the first Normal-Uhr or standard clock in Prussian capital made by a renowned clockmaker christian Mullinger, it was installed in the window of royal academy of sciences which used to sit in unter den linden the building originally the old royal stables by the way doesn't exist anymore it disappeared in 1903 to make room for today's stabi the splendid and well-loved main house of the staatsbibliothek berlin state library just to remind you berlin is one of germany's 16 federal states between 1787 and 1872, many Berliners came daily to see the Akademie- Or, the academy clock, as it was and still is known. They visited it not so much as to behold its beauty. To keep the cost slow, the clock itself was brilliant technically, but it was not particularly fancy. But they came to set their own clocks and watches accordingly. They could even do it at night, as after sunset the clock was illuminated. The Unter den Linden chronometer served as Berlin's standard clock. All the other chronometers had to follow. It was controlled and regulated once a week. To make sure at Scholl's the right time, someone had to visit the nearby observatory, which back then had its seat right around the corner in today's Dorotheenstraße, but then it was called Letzterstrasse, Last Street. There they set the watch according to the celestial observations of Berlin astronomers and returned to the front room of the Academy of Sciences to set the academy clock. Until the introduction of the first electric clocks, coordinated by the master clock at the new observatory on what is now Enkerplatz in Kreuzberg, all public and private clocks in Berlin had to be set manually to show the same time as the official standard clock in Unter den Linden. So later, this new electric master clock sent an electric signal to five slave clocks installed in Berlin and automatically regulated the time they showed. The nearest of these six clocks, by the way, looking from the new observatory, the one in Kreuzberg, stood in front of the old Kammergericht, the old district court building and now the seat of Berlin's Jewish Museum in Lindenstraße, I'm sure you know it. Alternatively, you could walk to Potsdamer Platz. You could visit Moritzplatz or you could head for Markt. There was also one such clock at Oranienburger Tor, which used to be one of Berlin's city gates, and it stood at what's now the western end of Torstrasse. After the electric and later wireless public clocks took over, the old academy clock was no longer indispensable, but it still remained very much popular. Until 1903, when it was time to say goodbye to the old Academy building, which was about to be demolished. The clock was dismantled, suffering a bit of a damage as they pried it out of the bearings, and after some years of uncertainty, it eventually found its way to the wonderful collection of the Märkisches Museum, the main seat of Berlin's History Museum in Berlin Mitte, where it survived the war. In 1997, the ancient, at least by Berlin standards, chronometer was given an overhaul. Today, if you go to Jägerstrasse number 22, which is not far from Gendarmenmarkt, you will find it at the Berlin-Brandenburgian Academy. It doesn't work anymore, but, well, neither does it have to. So, now it's time we moved both in time and space. And only one and a half kilometers northeast from Jägerstrasse 22 on Alexanderplatz stands one of Berlin's most recognisable objects, a city symbol, really, just like the Fernsehturm and Brandenburger Tor. It's the weltzeit the world clock. It's very easy to find, even on what's a very crowded plaza. You can't overlook something that is 10 metres tall, has a rotating model planetary system on top and is surrounded by masses of excited young people looking, the irony of it, at the smartphone watches in the hope that the date shows up as agreed. The world clock, created by a brilliant East German industrial designer, Erich Jön, and unveiled on East Germany's 20th birthday in September 1969, looks complicated, but it's not. You just have to know several things in advance, so let me help. The clock has four main elements. The column, a large cylinder resting on it, and the miniature of our solar system crowning the hole. The column is at the same time an access shaft to both the inside of the cylinder and to the machine room under the plaza. This is the fourth element. The cylinder symbolizes the earth. This particular shape was easier to build and it allowed the designer to use it to install 24 sections. Each of these stands for 15 degrees longitude, or one time zone. Remember, we mentioned it last week too. They each also symbolize one hour in a day and come in a slightly different color, brighter for the day, darker for the night. And these hues, by the way, they are not just pretty. They are what is known as Goethe's Farbenkreis, or Goethe's Color Wheel, Today, Johann von Goethe, the heavyweight of German literature, is mostly known for his other works. But in 1810, he published a small book called Farbelehre, Theory of Colors, which he himself, believe it or not, considered to be his most important work. So we have 24 sections with 24 hours from one full day on a cylinder that rotates and it has to rotate to show the correct time. In space, it's the Earth that does the rotating, and that's what we observe to establish the correct time. But for various reasons, which we cannot discuss here because, you know, time, the weltzeit can only show how the hours move into respective sizes of the Earth, known as time zones, and not the other way around. So the cylinder is for hours. Minutes, however, are represented by the planetary system hovering above it. The clock shows minutes through its rotation. One full cycle per minute. If you follow one cycle of Saturn with your eyes, which is easy to do, as does the one with the ring, that's exactly one minute of your life well spent. If you want to know what time it is in, say, Melbourne in Australia, one of 146 city names carved in aluminium on the 24 sections, you have to find the section with its name and see what number you see on the belt moving inside the cylinder. The five small golden squares under and above the number will help you determine the current time with more precision. To see what time it is in Berlin, however, you only need to look at one of the four traditional clocks installed underneath the cylinder on the side or column. This way, not only do you see how late it is on Alexanderplatz, but by looking up onto the cylinder, you also know if people in San Francisco London or in Dushanbe, which is in Tajikistan, one of the many wonderful things you can learn thanks to the World Sight War, are about to get up, go to bed or take their lunch break. The fact that Berlin visitors find particularly thrilling is the Trabant story. Trabant was a popular and expensive East German car make, a vehicle that, despite being the butt of many jokes, was simple but tough. It was built to last, despite cheap materials used for its construction. In 1969, Erich Jorn and his colleagues came up with this ingenious solution to the problem of how to power the clock and bring all its moving elements in motion in a steady and reliable way. They adjusted a trabant transmission mechanism by literally taking it all apart and fitting with new sprocket wheels, sprockets which they had made themselves. This was necessary as the original car transmission mechanism would have been too fast and the hour ring on the Weltzeitruhr had to move at a slower pace. So the planetary system, showing minutes, obviously, had to have its own transmission mechanism. And like with so many other parts of the clock, its designer had to find one himself and he transported it to Berlin from Saxony-Anhalt in his private Skoda estate car. The mechanism responsible for the rotation was originally powered by an old GDR electro engine, which was replaced in 1997 by a gear engine. The clock's machine room is hidden in a 5 x 5 meters chamber directly under the chronometer. Interestingly, the gear engine propels the ring hour of the clock slightly faster than the actual time-lapse – 5% faster to be exact. Each hour, a system of 12 cams installed on the ring turns the engine off for exactly three minutes to allow the signal from a DCF-77 transmitter in Mainflingen near Frankfurt am Main to adjust the time to that shown by the Federal Atomic Clock. This way, the Weltzeit-Ohr will not accumulate what is known as runtime error. In other words, it will never run late. But to be honest, well, you don't need to know all of those things to see that the Alexanderplatz clock is a work of art. It's both technically and design-wise a work of art, for which I would like to personally thank its designer, Professor Erich Jon, and all the East and West German teams and companies that were involved in its construction. For they gave the city something invaluable. It's a piece of living and ticking history. If you enjoyed today's episode of the podcast, please leave positive rating and follow me on your podcast streaming service of choice. You can also consider buying me a coffee to support the show. Details are in the show notes and return next week for a story of one landing in Berlin in April 1945. In the meantime you will find me on Twitter at, at Kreuzberg, that's Kreuzberg with ED at the end and on WordPress under Kreuzberg Berlin Companion. And thank you for joining me today. I'll see you in Berlin.